Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we are offering what Peter calls a mixed bag. <laughs> now, a potpourri. A potpourri uh, sounds a little bit more classier. Huh? Uh, classier. Doesn't, t- but, doesn't taste as good, though. But I'm sure I mean, we've had so much excitement lately. I'm sure you've all now recovered from the, the Oscar of the Food World, which is, of course, the James Beard Foundation Awards that happen every year, and this year is for the past several years is in Chicago. And your only excuse for being there is that you were at the Met Gala. The only excuse for not being there is that you were in in New York City changing clothes four times like Lady Gaga. Yeah, I mean... uh, I understand Kim Kardashian looked pretty fetching too. Yes, I mean, somebody was trying <laughs> to figure out where her internal organs, well, organs well, were. Never mind. <laughs> she was in, never mind. in a situation. This, this is a food and Let's wine do. program. Okay, this, is not, this is not a dress code program. Okay, well, we're, we're going to switch gears altogether and talk about um, something more nitty-gritty, which is um, a, a book called Urban For- The Urban Forager, and we're going to be talking to Eliza Callow, and I had let, let, let's have, let's have her explain what she does. Okay. You know, when I heard about this book, I immediately thought of something totally different. The book's called "The Urban Forager: Culinary Exploring and Cooking on LA's East Side," and the author is Elisa, or is it Eliza? Elisa Calvo. Uh, Elisa. I thought this urban foraging was when you walked around and saw the the mulberry trees dropping the mulberries and nobody picked them up and, and finding um, uh, wild herbs in the in people's backyards. <laughs> well, I think you're halfway right because I do a lot of what you call neighborhood foraging because there in and in this particular part of the world, especially in the winter time. Citrus fruits are absolutely everywhere. Right. I, mean, I call it the orange and green time. Mm-hmm. You know, anywhere else in the world, it's probably hollies and berries, but here it's orange and green. And my first real kind of foray into neighborhood foraging was to say, I love making marmalade. I'm going to send a little notice through the neighborhood blog and say, if anybody has too many citrus fruits, I'll pick them and you'll get a jar of, of marmalade. And from that, I received 18 or 20 immediate responses with all kinds of heartfelt, please take some. And out of that, I re-found a person who had bought my old home, and we reconnected. And I also found this beautiful fruit called Rangpur lime that very few people know about. No, I don't know. Do you know about Rangpur? No. I mean, it's a very bitter citrus fruit that's orange on the inside but it is absolutely like toe curling bitter and sour and makes this amazing marmalade that tastes a lot like kind of a chutney and in fact it is often used by northern Indian people in their food so that is one kind of foraging so you're not entirely wrong but the main part of it is the the idea of what urban foraging can mean is is what are the rich cultural tiny Stores that are all over Los Angeles now, particularly on the east side, because of the vast number and complexity of immigrants coming to this area. And what, what I found is, as a cook and not just an eater, 
is that every every culture that comes here pines away for their food, and so they often begin to grow their own family <laughs> grocery stores and such. And these stores are beautiful. They may not be spending a lot of money on amenities, so they're not actually gorgeous from the outside. But when you go inside, they're immaculate, and just, you can tell they're well-loved, and they're filled with ingredients that I've never seen before. And so, so that kind of second piece, which is so much a part of the specifics of living in this place, uh, became a real passion. And then the third form is just, who's doing this cooking out here? And I really wanted to focus on home cooks who are very much a part of the other the various cultures that are emerging in Los Angeles and find out what they're doing and almost stand side by side next to them like a, a little kid used to, learning from their mother or father how to cook. Mm-hmm. That's how I really saw this third part of the foraging piece. And that was one of my most favorite because, my, as you said, my original um, career was the development of community arts programs. And this is another form of community, I think. And it's much more accessible because everyone eats. Now, I, see, I was picturing something entirely different. I was picturing Alice Waters picking greens out of the cracks in the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that hard. Not that hard. And, and really, though, you know, for a lot of people, it's a little bit intimidating to walk into a store that represents a culture that they haven't ever experienced, to walk in and, and, and be what I call sort of a beginner's mind person that says, I don't know what this is. Can you please tell me? And what, what you know, that too is foraging um, in, in writ large in a place like Los Angeles. I often do, I almost never take freeways in L.A. I'm, I'm considered a strange one by my husband because I love going on surface streets because I'm going into neighborhoods that are not mine. And if, I, if you look right and left, there's a street in L.A. called Beverly Boulevard, and it, it goes from downtown all the way through to the west side of L.A., and you literally are wandering through or driving through five or six distinct countries at the very least. Yeah, tell and me some of the of countries. Those, hmm? tell, what are some of the, the uh, immigration, immigrant communities there? Okay, so you might be star- starting on the east side. Well, first, it's, it's, it's the Silver Lake area, which is sort of hipster, <laughs> which is its own culture. And then you move into El Salvadorian, Koreatown, yeah. um, the historic Filipino town now, which is a little sliver of amazing food places. You keep going, and you're in a, in a very old uh, Jewish community where a lot of the delis used to be, and you can still, still see Orthodox people walking um, on Fridays, and then you end up on sort of West Hollywood, which is re-emerging hipster, and you literally, this is maybe a 10-mile stint, and you can stop, and if you're like me, you know, there's <laughs> there's a part of me that is at times late, because I can't help myself, <laughs> and um, I, my husband's used to it, my friends are used to it, and I'll text them and say, I just found something, I'll be right there. <laughs> You know, yeah. and there's a quote I wanted to read to you, if you don't mind, that I think will encapsulate true foragers. Okay. It says, I love going out of my way beyond what I know and finding my way back a few extra miles by another trail with a compass that argues with a map. And that's Rebecca Solnit from A Field Guide to Getting Lost. So that's I should have probably called this book A Field Guide to Getting Lost Part 2. You know? Yeah, that's a, that's a good title. That's true. Yeah, you would understand. I, I, I just did some urban foraging from the UPS man. <laughs> did you really? 
<laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm breathing heavy. I just ran down the steps and then you ran did, did, up Did you catch him? Uh, nobody left the box on the side. Oh, he left the box on the door. Oh, he was trusting. <laughs> no, um, well, yeah, I mean, L.A. is having such a surge in its food identity right now. I, um, a, a friend of mine just went there as a, a restaurant critic, Bill Addison, for the L.A. Times. And, uh-huh. and, and um, the... It's the only city that I know of right now, uh, except for, well, I don't even know about New York, I guess New York, um, that has an expanding food section in its, uh, its newspapers. I, I know that, and in fact, I, I'm, I'm so excited about it. Um, it's a risky thing to do as, as newspapers are having to consider their markets now and print media is really struggling. But um, I was my, one of my first book signings, and, and, I, and I'm also really grateful to you for talking to me because this is, you know, some people say, well, what do I have to do with East Side LA? But I, my first book signings were in, in San Francisco, which made me feel very kind of smug because we always kind of look to the Bay Area as the place, you know, the real city oh, and yeah. so on, right? And I went to Omnivore Bookstore, and Celia Sachs hosted it, and she's lovely, and it's an all-cookbook store, and she really knows the food culture of, of many, many places because she's a, a cookbook seller. And uh, she said she introduced me by saying I asked Elisa to come, and I've purchased her book for a sale because I think this is the most exciting food community in the country right now. And I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> and, I, and we asked, you know, we sort of talked about why. If you're, you know, and one was, I thought was quite interesting, was this sort of atomized way that food has developed in Los Angeles. There isn't, at least until now, a Michelin star process here um, in terms of deciding what food is good and not good, whereas in San Francisco and New York it is. And that tends to be rather um, Western European-centric. And here, you know, with someone like Jonathan Gold, the late oh, Jonathan I Gold, right? Jonathan I mean, Gold. he just opened up people's eyes to, it's going to be okay, you can try this food. It's actually incredibly skillfully created. It's different. It might have simple ingredients, but you're going to, you know. And, and I think because of that and the neighborhood kind of expanded neighborhood geography of L.A., it's really allowed this burgeoning to happen. And I'm just like, I'm like a, you know, a pig in my, in my yeah. mud right well, now. Well, you I'm know, so actually, happy. the geography was what put me off. And we had friends who lived in uh, San Pedro, which is practically in the middle of L.A. now. <laughs> I love San Pedro. Yeah. But, I, I love it. I think it's one of those communities that I is loved so rich, too. right? Well, we, you know, of course, we regularly went into the uh, um, the city market, and and yeah. it, you had to kind of hold your breath going through five yeah. crosses over five lanes of traffic. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but you know, San Pedro is an old, old town, and it's, great. it's it's part of L.A. Even though it's you know it's it's part of L.A. because of the of the port, we know that, and but they are so filled with old, old communities that are just, you know, feel their connection to that town. I, I don't, I guess you can't call it a city because it's part of Los Angeles. Yeah, but you know, it used to be further away from Los Angeles. It's no, not. I know. No, I see what you mean. Yes, <laughs> I see what you mean. Um, 
but it's yeah i actually i actually worked on a, a community mapping project there for a year when i was doing consulting and yeah. i got to speak to probably 60 people <laughs> i think that's a part of this book you know if you if you think about it it's really both a it's a cookbook but it's also a kind of cultural snapshot i think yeah you, and, you single um, out it, individual people um, yes. to do profiles on i mean uh, how did you determine this? Is just people you encountered? No, I was, but it is a kind of unwinding a ball of string kind of metaphor. That's, I was thinking of that. Yeah, yeah. I think I know. I think I know. You know, and that's how a lot of us understand food. It's not a very scientific process, and I certainly didn't say this is the cookbook for Los Angeles. I I describe it as the tip of a happy iceberg. That this is just. I wanted a couple of things. I wanted mostly home cooks. Because I wanted recipes where home cooks could feel they had the capacity to make them. And a lot of cookbooks now are very, very esoteric, and they're gorgeous, and there's 40 steps in them. And I just thought, those become tabletop cookbooks, I mean, you know, coffee table books. And I didn't want that at all. I really, that's why I spent a lot of time on the basics and how to cook in here. So yeah, three, it's of very the, three of the cooks are home cooks. You're training um, and, cooks. And two are professionals. Um, the and one was a professional, but the way I found them, the first one, the the first one is Mario Rodriguez, who's one of the sweetest people on the planet, and he was a cook. He was a um, fishing partner of my husband's, oh, okay. and uh, my husband loves to make chorizo. And Mario asked us over for dinner one night, and he he made this uh, queso fundido, which is now in the cookbook, and his wife made the best guacamole, I mean, it sounds like Doug guacamole, but it was the best stuff I've had in years, and I dreamt about it. And so when I started thinking about this cookbook, I called him up and I said, can I talk to you? I didn't let him know what was going on, really, because I talked to a lot of people who didn't actually end up in the cookbook. And then I found out that Mario doesn't just, you know, he isn't just a social worker administrator by day. He cooks with David Feo, who's one of the, you know, he's a Michelin-starred chef. Uh-huh. And he, he makes foie gras tamales with David. And oh, he wow. has done pop-ups. And his entire family are food-focused. And so when I did the interviews of each chef, and he's one, the first, we spent hours together talking. And then I, I, I encapsulated those interviews into those one-page descriptions and felt like the need to create a table of their food influences, which is what that wonderful illustration is um, by right. Simone Rain. And they were just, you know, because, and his were all people-oriented. His Tia this and his Abuleta that and David and the Truffle Brothers. These are all people that influenced him. And then let me just tell you one more was uh, Sumi Chang, who is one of the beloved bakers who owned a bakery in Pasadena called Europane. And she had just retired, just sold her, retired in terms of the bakery, and just sold it. (laughs) And I called her, and I said, would you want to do this? And I love Sumi because um, even though she's a professional baker and brilliant at it, she created this community environment in Europane. And she also comes from, she was born in Korea, where she said the only desserts are chewing gum and fruit. So her (laughs) desire for baking is so much a part of her herself that I thought we have to put her in so you know a lot of it was and then who else do you know you know mm-hmm. Min Fan was uh, the the other one the other professional chef came out of um, a relationship to the 
photographer and cutting from the cookbook because Anne is also a fantastic ceramicist. So her plates and vessels are, are shown throughout the cookbook, and she makes them for Min Fan. For a very large city, actually, L.A. is full of little pockets of connection, and I, that I found out, too, that so-and-so knew so-and-so, and, you know, the providers of beautiful Coda Rice is a good friend of, of Min, and <laughs> who also knows this person. So it became this exactly, like you said, you know, this sort of just keep walking um, experience. Now, here's, here's a challenge for you. Yeah. You, you have to find the bakery. Mm-hmm. That makes alligator cookies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> alligator cookies? I know one. That, are you talking about like the Victor Benish alligators, but yeah. alligator cookies? Yeah. They're, they're, I forgot the well, alligator cookies. Imagine they're long, but if... But if they're that, not like those big wedding if, cookies. If, no, they're if, if individual that, size. Yeah, okay, and do they have the pecans and the... And the, um, the no, no, they're just like, no. short, they're just like shortbread and they're dusted with sugar. I will try cookies. and find them. And, and you have given me a challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I fell in love with them. I don't know where it is, but Anne, Anne got a craving for these things when she was expecting our son. Yeah, I was and, pregnant. That was why. And, and my, the, branch, the branch manager who worked for me in Los Angeles, uh-huh. actually, uh, no, knowing that Anne liked them, would buy... A quantity and FedEx them over once, oh, once, really? every, <laughs> once, every, once every three yeah, or four They were weeks. air freighted. They were air freighted. Yeah. Alligator yeah. cookies. Yeah. I've never heard of that. I've right. only They're not really called you know? alligator cookies. It's, it's what we called them because they reminded me of alligators. Well, they, were shaped, they were shaped like alligators. They were shaped sort of like alligators. Oh, well, that's going to make it even more complicated. Where did he buy them from? Do you know? Some, which we, I wish we remembered. It, it, it was, was a it was, Mexican bakery. It was, it a Mexican bakery? Oh, they're not polvoron, are they? I don't, I don't know. know. They have some know. cinnamon in them and sugar. Oh, I think I can find those. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I know well, what you're I mean, talking about. I'm going to go do some sleuthing. I Actually, <laughs> tomorrow I'm leading a food tour with Mario Rodriguez of um, East L.A., the actual East L.A., Boyle Heights area, and we're starting at a wonderful place called Mole Latias, uh, um, and it's a beautiful mole uh, restaurant, you know, you know, with the 30 ingredients kind of place. And then we're taking people to the El Mercado de Los Angeles. And if we mm. don't find these in one of those two places, then they don't exist. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> they, they, may, they may not exist anymore anyway. No, I think they, I think I'm, I think I'm actually, re, I think I know what you're talking about. So yes, tomorrow I'm going to look for you. Yeah. Let's make sure that people know that this book is chock full of, of uh, cultural uh, enlightenment um, about the area you're writing about. It's full of, of the human interest and the people you talk about and the sense of community that you discuss. And it also has, um, it's very educational and instructional, uh, providing you to go from the very beginning level to much more sophisticated, especially in the baking area. And then on top of that, the individual recipes themselves are, are wonderful. So oh, you, you really did it. <laughs> oh, you know what's really fun is I'm now receiving from people who purchased the book little Instagrams and photographs oh, yes. of them doing the, the recipes. And I, that, for me, is the happiest moment when they... They feel like they can do it, and I've gotten probably twelve or so responses, and it just came out in March, you know, early March. Mm. And I did this, but um, 
you know, I did that, and I just, you know, so by the book, you know, the actual book has over 115 recipes and over 80 photographs and the five profiles, and then 57 stores are profiled. And I do want to say for people who are not in Los Angeles but intend to visit us, um, number one, it's a great guide to connecting to L.A. because it's a neighborhood-based guide where if you happen to be us somewhere, you could taste L.A. instead of just do the the traditional touristy things, or even if you never plan to go to L.A., there are some tips about how to forage, how to enter communities that are new to you so that you can take from this and build your own foraging practice. Well, I, I think it's a great addition. It's, it's really, um, you get, I think we're entering a different era altogether uh, in our food culture, um, dining culture, uh, cookbooks, where I think we're moving away from this big celebrity chef, thank God. <laughs> I, I agree culture. with you. I, and I we're, agree we're with dealing you. with issues. We're dealing with issues, uh, including community, including um, food waste, um, um, food insecurity, um, uh, you know, all, kind, I mean, all these issues, uh, dependency, you know, all kinds of things. And so... I think that this is a wonderful contribution to where we're going. Um, Can I just mention, too, and I, that sure. I did write a food-related blog um, until this happened, and now I have no time, and I'm going to get back to it. Good. But when you mentioned all those issues, that's, that's how this started. It's called the urbanforager.co. That's the blog. Yeah. And information about the book is on there as well. But it's exactly those issues, like there's um, there's a book, there's a, uh, one that is about farming and issues of water and what citrus farmers are doing now because of the lack of water in certain areas. Oh, um, yeah. There's, there's one called refrigerator foraging as microactivism, you know, to not waste food. And, uh-huh. and um, there's subject after subject where it's not about perfection and plating and all those things that food food became in that celebrity chef period. Oh, yeah. Um, it, I really appreciate the fact that you also feel there are larger issues around food. Oh, absolutely. Than perfection. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're hitting it. So, um, well, good luck with your book here. And I'm glad you're, you're going to restart your blog, huh? I am. As soon as I'm done with these 21 different events i something i found out about myself because i come out of community arts i my most of the book signings aren't just book signings there's like like tomorrow there's this tour and i'm teaching cooking classes somewhere and i'm doing a what we're calling a toppers party at truffle brothers where i'm combining with la bread bakers a wonderful group they're going to bring in bread and i'm bringing i'm bringing all the toppings that are from the cookbook and the truffle brothers are bringing their own stuff so it's gotten a little crazy (laughs) but when it's because it's so programmatic but after june it should be calmer and i'm going to start up the blog again because i really miss it well listeners um, pick up the urban forager um, for a lot of enlightenment and inspiration. And uh, thank you, Lisa Callow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Peter and Anne. And don't go away, because we'll be right back.
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up, we're going to be talking again to somebody we talk to frequently, actually, Marissa McClellan, uh, who has written a, a number of books. And I think this current one that she's come out with, uh, The Food in Jars Kitchen, is probably your go-to reference book for uh, what we all wish we did or were doing or had friends who did who shared. It's called, um, it's about canning, preserving fermenting, whatever, uh, and it's all about your pantry. And it's called Food in Jars. Kitchen, the Food in Jars Kitchen. Marissa McClellan is almost a regular on on the menu, aren't you, Marissa? I am. I'm so glad to be back again. Yeah. So, but you have a whole series um, that you, you started, like, online with your blog, and uh, called Food in Jars. Uh, and this one is the logical wrap-up of all the ones we've been talking about with how to preserve... No, no it should have a subtitle, though. It should, should, oh, yeah. should be Marmalade okay. with Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, i gotta, I gotta, I got to warn you off this lady. She puts marmalade on pizza. Well, but it's delicious pizza. <laughs> what kind of marmalade is it? <laughs> um, I like to use either like an orange or a lemon. And yeah. you, you pair it with like some really good olives. And, you know, it's not pizza like we normally think of with tomato sauce and cheese. But I might I use a little goat cheese, something kind of creamy and sharp, mm-hmm. and um, olives and marmalade. And it, it's really a nice little bite. It's great for parties. Um, it's delicious. I know it sounds a little crazy, but it sure tastes good. Well, there's another ingredient you're missing, though. Vegi- oh, I'm... Vegemite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know... Yeah, I know. <laughs> that is a controversial ingredient. It certainly it, it, is. It is. Veg- Vegemite and marmalade is the, is, the, is the breakfast food of the gods in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a way of doing it. You have to make a little dam, isn't it? <laughs> You, you make a wall. A wall. Ah, <laughs> and, and, and gotcha. Then you, gotcha. Then, you, then you put your marmalade in, in the space inside the walls. <laughs> well, <it> makes sense. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, we can get right to the point with just saying what the subtitle is of your book. Uh, 140 Ways to Cook, Bake, Plate, and Share Your Homemade Pantry. All along you've been t- telling us how to preserve this and pickle that and jam up this. And people were asking you, so now what do I do with all of this, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> so hence this book, and what do you do in this book? Well, this book is all about um, recipes that can help you discover what you can do with it. So everything from breakfast items, um, you know, baked goods to meat dishes like braises that employ jam or salsa, as well as um, desserts and popsicles and cocktails. Like I really tried to find something that you could eat every hour of the day that um, would employ 
jams and preserves and pickles and those the, sorts of things. The alternative is to let them rot in the corner of your pantry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, now, uh, you're the only body, only one I know who appreciates sauerkraut with eggs. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I love it's, it too. <laughs> it's so delicious. I'm all, I, I am a sauerkraut and eggs evangelist. I try to, um, convert people to that combination whenever possible because I think it's so so good. Oh, I think it's wonderful, but you don't really find many people doing it. <laughs> it's true. I think it's a little out there, but you know, especially if you're someone who wants to incorporate more vegetables into your breakfast or, you know, you're trying to get more of those probiotics into your diet through um, you know, sauerkraut and other fermented foods, you know, eating them with eggs is just the best way. Well, run us through some of these. Now, are they fried eggs and you cut them up and let the yolk it's run all over your sauerkraut? Well, that is how I do it when I'm just, you know, making breakfast for myself, and that's a delicious combination. But um, the recipe I have in the book is actually a sauerkraut frittata, mm-hmm. um, and so it includes some sauerkraut, some potatoes, um, and you can use other vegetables, too, if you'd like. And then basically you add the um, the eggs and kind of let it set on the stovetop, and then I like to finish it in the oven. Um, but it's one that's great for breakfast or brunch. It also makes a nice dinner, and it's good whether you're, it's served warm or even from the refrigerator. Oh, no, I'm, I make my frittata eggs, well, not exactly the same way, but pretty much the same way. The only, the only thing is I start putting the filling in as soon as, soon as I have the eggs in the pan. Oh, yeah, I like to do, I like to warm the filling first and then pour the eggs into them. But I'm sure, you know, everybody has their own technique. When I do do my tuna fish omelet, uh, I do the, heat the tuna fish separately. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And with the, with the sour cream and mushrooms. I'm I'm sure the way you're doing it is the proper way. I just, (laughs) I just decided this was going to be Peter's way. Well, you know, she has some really, Kind of surprising recipes here. Um, you know, I'm, I I love preserved lemons. Um, Peter doesn't like to cook with them, um, and people are always asking me what to do with their preserved lemons after I get them to to make preserved lemons. Now, this is an unusual thing: preserved lemon hummus. Now that's really weird. <laughs> you, but you know what? It's actually so wonderful because oh, I think it's great. You know, most batches of hummus have some lemon in them. So this just adds that sharpness from the preserved lemons, and you get so much interest and flavor into just a basic batch of hummus. I feel like, you know, I don't know why people haven't been putting preserved lemons and hummus for for generations, because it tastes so good. Yeah, it's also the right part of the world. I mean, Yeah, exactly. Um, you do a lot in this book with toast. Yes. I have to tell you that uh, one of the trainers at my gym uh, is asked me about something about toast, and I said, I hate toast. And ever since he's been calling me a communist, <laughs> he said, I've ruined his mornings because every time he goes to put his bread in the toaster, he thinks of me. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're very eloquent on the subject of jam pans. Jam yes. and, there, and there's a there's a family story I'll share with you, just so just so we get it out on the air for our listeners and understand that there are human beings behind on the menu regardless of what they think. <laughs> but my my mother used to make marmalade, 
and ev- everybody was all hands to the pump when the Seville Oranges came in. This is in, in England, the Seville Oranges have a season of about six weeks, yeah. and, then, and then they're gone. Yep. So everybody, so everybody has to cut the pith off the rind and do all the squeeze all the juice out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, my father was not my stepfather. He was not a romantic soul, as you will tell from the rest of the story. Because one year after, after the batch of Seville orange marmalade had been made, and my mother had complained copiously about the fact that she didn't have a big enough jam pan. He gave her one for her birthday, <laughs> <laughs> and she hit him with it. <laughs> oh no! So, so, so forever after in the in the Hague family, if you give someone something for their birthday that is very sensible but they don't want it, it's called a jam pan. Yeah, well, oh, that's too funny. Yeah, well, I, I thought you, you were up, you were upset about my version of jam pan <laughs> for Valentine's Day. I got you a spoon rest. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it was shaped like a carrot. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> that's very funny. That, that's a long story, Marissa. That's a we, long won't, story. we won't go. We won't go. Why, we won't go. Why it was a rabbit? Now, tell what what's it called? That the chapter where you put all the stuff in because you didn't it didn't fit in anything else. Um, I, I think I called that the snacks chapter. That's it. Tell us yep. about that. Uh, well, so this was just a chapter of things that I knew needed to be in the book but didn't really fit anywhere else. And so, you know, it's sort of the little extras. Um, <clears throat> the things that I really love in the, that chapter, particularly I love the um, the jam-glazed nuts, yes. which are kind of unusual. Um, but basically, in, you know, often you come across nuts that have been glazed with, like, sugar or maple syrup. And so in the, in that, in place of those sweeteners, I just used a little bit of jam and butter. And they are so delicious and a real, um, a nice change from what you might often serve at like a cocktail party or something. Right. They sound good. I, they sound doable. I kind of like yeah. the idea. I'm surprised Smucker. They're not hard at all. I'm surprised Smuckers hasn't just grabbed you up and made you a spokesperson. Yeah, why not? <laughs> there's, there's two little boys that are kind of stupid anyway. <laughs> um, you devote a, a, a whole large section to green salads. Yeah. You know, when, you know, it never occurred to me that somebody would need a recipe for a green salad. Well, but You have yeah. it organized. I mean, it's like you, you can't fail if you follow this formula. Explain your formula for it. Well, so when it comes to building a salad, um, I always look at it in sort of components. So you've got your base greens, and then you need something crunchy, something creamy, and something sweet is how I look at building a salad, particularly a salad that you want to take to a party or a potluck, you know, something that you kind of want to impress with. And so um, I offer those ideas up and then give a basic technique for how to combine those. And so I really encourage people, you know, to think about their pantry when they're choosing these components. So, you know, often when it comes to adding something crunchy, I like to add like a slivered pickle or pickled red onions. And something sweet can be little bits of preserved fruit or you can, you know, include the jam and the vinaigrette. And it's just a way to create salads that are a little bit different um, and I feel like achieve more of a restaurant feel for a salad 
Because often at home, you know, you throw everything but the kitchen sink in your salad. And I feel like one of the marks of a really great salad is restraint and not doing too much so that the ingredients you put in really have an opportunity to um, sing and be as delicious as possible. Yeah, well, I, I freak out on salads. I eat salads probably three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, great. I, yeah, I mean, I put it's, it. It's, it's leftover. Two out of three times, it's leftovers. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I do. So. No, nothing wrong with that. No. So... I'm always looking for interesting components for a salad, so yeah. that, that's, that's interesting to read what you have. Um, along the, the more unusual combinations you have is strawberry basil pizza. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, that's on the page after the marmalade in the yeah, pizza. Yeah, that's the marmalade. Follow, follow yeah. that, huh? Well, so when, when I was writing about pizza, we almost called this chapter flatbreads. Because, you know, what we're really talking about, it's not so much a traditional pizza as a flat dough that you have basically used as a vehicle to combine some really tasty ingredients. So, you know, I, they're each of the pizzas that I put in the book are really kind of unique spins on a classic pizza where instead of using tomato sauce, you're using some kind of preserve, whether it's strawberry jam or marmalade or like a grape, conquered grape butter. And these all kind of serve the place to kind of glue everything together, um, add that, add a little bit of moisture and flavor, and then you top them with flavors and ingredients that are harmonious with the the jam that you've chosen. And so the strawberry basil one is actually a riff on something that I ate as a kid. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and we had some really great, kind of fancy gourmet pizza shops when I was growing up and they had dessert pizzas and so the combination of strawberry and basil was on one of their dessert pizzas when I was a kid and at first I thought it was weird but I was totally sold the minute I had a bite and so it's always been one of my favorite like non-traditional um, pizza combinations. You know this explains a lot because you referenced things you grew up eating and I thought to myself she she really had a very flavorful childhood <laughs> but if it's from Portland now I understand a little yep. bit. Yeah so yeah. I, I'm not sure that really explains to me this one there's a chocolate sauerkraut cake. You know, so actually that is not a recipe even of my own invention. That is a classic combination. I know it sounds crazy, but back in the 40s and 50s, when a lot of schools and other institutions would get big cans of government surplus sauerkraut, they had to figure out ways to use it. And so one of the things that they devised was creating a cake where it's very finely chopped, like you rinse it, you combine it with some water, you chop it real finely, I do it in a blender, and it provides moisture and structure to a chocolate cake. And it's actually one of the lightest, um, tenderest, most fluffy chocolate cakes you'll ever run into. It's really delicious. And you don't taste the sauerkraut. It's almost just a little bit sour, like as if you had added sour cream and not sauerkraut. Right. Um, you you, you got to convince me there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I think Marissa McClellan, you were you probably think about food all night long as well as all day long because you Absolutely. certainly yeah you know, I could tell because you're really resourceful. You, 
Here's here's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Do you do you keep a pad and pencil by your bedside so that when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning you you don't have to go find one when you dreamt of a new recipe? I always have my phone actually by my oh, my okay. bedside right. and I can just type in what I what has struck me in the night. <laughs> Great. Well, again, uh, listeners, you with the pantry full of all these these uh, hand preserved. Uh, um, goodies and food in jars. It's the food in jars kitchen, which tells you what to do with all of those pickles and preserves and jams. And I, I think that, as I said, it's a very large, a logical follow-up, um, Marissa, to the other books you've written. So what's next? <laughs> well, um, currently I'm actually pregnant with twins at the moment. Oh, and wow. So- um, a lot of people have been joking that the next thing needs to be baby food in jars. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we'll see. Is this a first? It is. I these are my these will be my first children. Okay. Well, you haven't probably ever tasted the baby food you get in the supermarket in jars, huh? I haven't. I hear it's not great, though. Oh my god! <laughs> I made the mistake of actually tasting it. <laughs> you know, it was disgusting, and the pediatrician said, "Add salt," <laughs> which, oh, <no. laughs> which is terrible, isn't it? Anyhow, well, good luck with your twins. When do you do? Um, August eighth. Oh wow! You're going to miss my birthday, which is July twelfth. <laughs> yeah, they need to stay in a little longer than that. All right. Well, good for you. Are they? Uh, uh, Identical or? They are fraternal, um, but they're both boys. So oh, wow. we know we're having two little boys. Yeah, we have twin nephews. They're a handful, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear, but I'm really, really excited about it nonetheless. Oh, yeah, I think it's a great idea. So, okay, Marissa McClellan, thank you for talking to us again. Good luck with the twins. Thank and you. I'm, I'm waving the, except I'm a little past the baby stage now. My my grandchildren are getting up there. I have one that's 10 and one that's 12. Oh, wow. And finally they eat normal you know, things. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. So hopefully your twins will eat normal things too. And if not, you'll have to write two books. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah, don't, don't listen to the pediatrician, by the way. They're the reason why we have all these allergies. Oh, okay. Because they give out these guidelines for what to feed babies, and it includes things like no fish until after two years of age. You know, oh, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, my grandchildren's pediatrician, and it was awful. And pineapple on pizza, but but Vegemite on pizza is (laughs) okay. Okay, Marissa. Good luck to you. Oh, you Thank in, you so much. You're Have in Philadelphia. One. That's where our kids live. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And now for our last segment, um, it's you're, you're, were you asleep there, do you? No. <laughs> okay. I'm almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. All right. But uh, it's a, a subject that comes up regularly is um, what is Filipino cooking, 
and is it popular or is it going to be popular? We're now returning to Nicole Padseca. Who, with, who with her partner has two, I think, Filipino restaurants in New York City. And she, she and Miguel, um, her partner, wrote, I am a Filipino, and she gives us the lowdown on what exactly that means. Well, Nicole Ponseca uh, with Miguel Trinidad, um, you wrote this book called I Am a Filipino, and this is how we cook. Now, I have been hearing for, oh, it, I mean, it has to be probably the last seven years that the next hot cuisine is going to be Philippine. Uh, yes. is, is that true? Is, where are we with that? I think it's a great question. I think uh, we had a lot to do with it. That question and, or that assertion came out really when we opened our first restaurant, Maharlika, in 2011 and was causing quite a stir in New York City and in the, the social networks and, and friendships that really care about food. All of a sudden, people understood that there was such a void in the market in Filipino food offerings, and yet I bet you could scratch the surface or dig a little deeper and you'd see how many Filipinos you might know, especially here in the United States, um, in hospitals. There's at least one Filipino nurse. I would, I would venture to say at least one. And if you go deeper, there's someone connected to you that's Filipino. And that's because Filipinos are the second largest Asian group in the United States. And um, it's been a long time coming for our food to get a spotlight. Yeah, now, um, when we first moved to Pittsburgh, which was a while ago, there was a, a restaurant called La Filipiniana. And, um, and they used to have philosopher brunches, among other things. And, mm-hmm. um, and I... I it was busy all the time, but um, there was a family tragedy and they closed, and nothing replaced it. But I don't think it was real Philippine food. I'm reading in your book the recipes, and, and her cooking was like practically health food. Now, now the interesting, interesting thing I remember is that she used to grow lemongrass plants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> around, was it a pool or just in, in her garden? In the garden. She had a garden. And, and, she, uh. and she, gave, she gave us a couple of lemongrass plants, which which thrived very well, bringing them inside, and then one year end decided not to bother bringing them inside. It was too big. So, so, <laughs> so, so she committed She committed what I called lemongrassicide. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, the, and the, the poor... The poor plant lasted about two weeks after the first frost, and that was the end of it. Oh. And in, in, the mean, in the meantime, the lady closed their restaurant, so he couldn't get another one. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyhow, but I think, I mean, you, for us, summarize what you think is characteristic about Philippine cuisine. Okay, well, I'm just curious, La Filipiniana, was that in Pittsburgh? Yes. That, yes. Okay, I'm, I'm so curious. That, that's one... I had not heard of, and I, when I started this journey in 1998, I really was scouring the United States doing research on Filipino food and asking myself why wasn't it more prominent. And so I would look at different offerings. I'm gonna, I'm gonna note that 
I never heard of that, and it's a lovely name. Um, yes, well, I can't remember her name, but she was in Pittsburgh primarily because she was married to a, a philosophy professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and that's wow. what—that's why she was here. Um, but mm-hmm. she was also very strongly into healthy eating, and right. so she had reduced fat and all that sort of thing. I don't know the, how authentic that was. Well, you know, let's let's go to your first question, which what really categorizes Filipino food? Right. And I think whereas, you know, one could argue Thai food, by and large, what we know of it in the United States would be categorized as spicy and sweet. Um, Sichuan cooking would be notarized as um, also spicy and also texture. Filipino food... Um, as we take our seat at the culinary table, is marked by acid, sharp acid, acid. sharp sour notes that are vehicled uh, by citrus fruits and a bevy of different vinegars that are available in the Philippines that you could equate even to wine in the region that they're grown, the terroir, the kind of uh, be, uh, vegetable or fruit that's made for the vinegar. So we know Filipino by sourness, and there's few dishes that highlight that. And also on every table you'll see some form of vinegar or lemon or calamansi on the table. And yeah, we interviewed somebody recently that uh, was a Thai rabbit. Go ahead. Was it Thai cuisine that had the sour um, dominance as well? I don't, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't think I don't think it was. Thai. It was Southeast Asian. I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyhow, but go ahead. So what and, else? Um, and the second profile would be noted for uh, fermentation or funk. Uh-huh. And um, uh, that could be found primarily through our fish sauce in the Philippines, which is the byproduct of uh, a fermented shrimp or fish fish paste called. So these primarily get uh, fermented in barrels, and there's a paste that ferments from scad or anchovies, and then there's the liquid gold that rises to the top, and that is our fish sauce. So uh, it is a salting agent, you know, but it also provides an, uh, an ocean umami to it, and that is also on every table, more so than soy sauce, I would say, fermented funk. And uh, we also have it in some vegetal uh, fermentation of mustard greens. And we also do a fermentation which is more regional and not really known in modern Philippine cooking. It's fermented rice, and it's divine. Well, you know, this, uh, this stuff, the recipes in this book and the photographs, it appears to be very exotic, but it's the kind of thing that I think would be really popular. I mean, I'd love to get my hands on food like this regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, it certainly is exotic to the extent that it might not be normalized. We don't see these dishes every day, the words. There's, there's a, a whole new world of people that will, will now recognize this cuisine that never did. So I can understand that it is um, on the peripheral and so not normalized and not dined on every day. But when you look at the food, it's so delicious and easy. The recipes in this book 
we didn't want it to be a big hurdle to learn about Filipino food. And um, I think that's why we have such a great setup in the front to acknowledge the, yes, the, the flavors. Yes, the course yeah. and a short course, right. Now, now is, co- is coconut coconuts a big, big item too, right? Oh, yeah. Um, coconut was such a big export for us, and there were many families that built lots of wealth on coconut in the Philippines. Less so, um, but very much big, big part of our diet, in our, in our cultural diet, historic diet, yes. Now, a lot of people don't realize that for, for a long period of time, the Philippines was actually a colony of the United States, correct? Yes, that's right. So we have Puerto Rico, and I'd say the unsung colony would be uh, the United States. It was never a, a, a full recognized colony. We were seen as an independent um, state, but we had so many ties to the United States, many U.S. Um, uh, naval uh, exchanges. My father was in the U.S. Navy. Many Filipinos who are born here um, have a father that was in the U.S. military. I see. And uh, we had Subic Bay. So it's very, we speak English in, in the Philippines. And uh, it feels, uh, there's a, a, a nice stream of Americana when you go there that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a huge impact of the, of the Japanese invasion in 1941, right? Yeah, and I like that you say invasion because in large part it was always referred to as an occupation, but it really was an invasion. And I don't have the stats in front of me, but there was quite a massacre during that time of Filipinos that were killed. I, by I just, the Japanese. I just read a I just read a novel by uh, what what's the guy's name? He writes all the books. John Grisham, mm. and the the, uh, the the you can't call him the hero because he finishes up killing somebody. But he was involved in a thing called the Bataan March, yes, where literally tens and hundreds of thousands of of Amer- Americans were maltreated and died. And that left a that left a mark on him. That was, if you like, the theme of the novel that Grisham wrote. Uh-huh. But it, but it reminded me uh, of the fact that there, w- there was such an in- enormous impact on the Philippines in the Pacific Ocean theater. Yes, this country has been marked by um, a lot of interlopers that have dominated the Philippines. Spain being the most dominant for over three hundred years. Uh, I'm glad to be talking about this. I usually don't get to um, really chat about it on food conversations, but it is so integral to the discussion of Filipino food because it really tells the story of why Filipino food has this... It's both familiar and at the same time so new because of the many, many influences. So you might see notes of American... Japanese, Mexican, Spain, and certainly we've all tried those kind of foods. So when you take your first bite of Filipino, it might actually be Chinese-influenced, for instance. Right. And, um, you know, the the amount of deaths that have come through all the interlopers is something that just kind of gets put under the rug. But uh, it's, it's shocking, the tales that happened in this country, uh, the, the many people that were expensed. 
during wartime. And in fact, if you read a little bit about Mark Twain, he was very key on talking about imperialism and did a few commentary and cartoons about his opposition of America's occupation in the United uh, America's occupation in the Philippines. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I hope your listeners get more curious about the history of that. Oh, yeah. it's, it's very complex. I mean, you've also had um, native governments that have really been disastrous, right? Yes. Um, well, everybody uh, knows about what's her name's shoes. The lady with all the shoes. Right? <laughs> she, had, she had more shoes you know, than Marie Antoinette, I guess. Yeah, oh my gosh. You know, in 1985-86, I was a kid in school, and I was so desperate to know anything about my culture that, you know, in history class, even if it was just a small annex of a chapter that said something about Filipinos, my eyes lit up because I just suddenly felt recognized. Oh, wow. And when my American friends, predominantly white, um, I would visit their family homes, you know, the, the father or the mother would chat me up and say, oh, you know, I heard about Amelda. I heard about the shoes as a way to connect, you know, but then I... Don't want to. I don't want to be known. As I know. Well, well, let, let's let's not even talk about the current incumbent. <laughs> yeah, there's a bad yeah. one right now. Let, yeah. Let's go back to Adobo. Yes, let's that, that, please. Yeah, well, you. That's one of the character classic dishes. The Adobo is very important, right? Yeah, I'd say um, there's probably three different dishes that most people get introduced to when they visit a Filipino home or fiesta. And that would be adobo, pancit, which is noodles, and lumpia, which lumpia. are noodles. Yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of lumpia from La Filipiniana. There yeah. you go. Yeah. But adobo is really the cornerstone of our cooking, and there's so many different ways to cook it. And even I was shocked during our many trips to the Philippines. When you go deeper, beyond Luzon, beyond Manila, the regional qualities of adobo that can take on um, annatto or turmeric uh-huh. that we only knew it as soy sauce as the um, the flavoring agent with vinegar. But there's there's so many. It, is, it was mind boggling. And if you're a Filipino and you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have heard in some way, shape, or form. Oh, that's not my mom's adobo, or that doesn't taste like that. That can't be authentic. That's not the way we do it at home. But I think you'll be surprised that there are so many different ways to cook adobo that there really isn't just one way. So it opens our eyes to so many different flavor profiles that the Philippines has to offer. Let's just give people a a parameter which always astounds me when I hear it. Uh Because the Philippines, I mean, most people think of an island as just like an island. But (laughs) but the Philippines is, is beyond an archipelago. And there are how many, something like 5,000 or more islands in the Philippines? Yes, there's, the joke is there's 7,100 uh, islands, and it depends if it's high tide or low tide, to go up to 7,107. Oh, my. That's a, a lot. There's a lot. But, but, you're, but you're raising the flag for Philippine food in, in New York, and let's, let's make sure before we close that the people know where to find your restaurants so that, so that when they get excited about Philippine food, they'll know where to go. Oh, that's so kind of you. In, uh, in New York, we're located in the East Village. Uh, our first restaurant is on First Avenue and 7th Street. That's called Maharlika. 
And the second restaurant is on First Avenue and 12th Street, and that's Jeepney. Uh, but there's so many more restaurants in, in, in Philadelphia. There's Perla that just opened. And in Washington, D.C., we have Bad Saint and, um, Kaliwa. Oh, yeah, so, I forgot about that. Right. Yeah. I knew yeah. that one. Yeah. So, so. So there's so many. So, I hope you, when you come to New York, you do visit us, but if you're in another city, they're, they're popping up everywhere now. Well, that's cool. So, so, so whoever, whoever, Wrote what Anne read about Philippine food being the next hot cuisine. Turn, turns out to be the right answer after all. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. colorful. I love this purple thing. <laughs> oh, yes. Ube. Purple yam. Oh, jeez. Well, um, give them your website. How's that? Oh, thank you. Um, if you want to check us out, you could go to Jeepney NYC. Um, that's our Instagram as well, Maharlika NYC. And you can find me at Nicole Ponseca. That's my Instagram. You can follow me cooking and my travels and meeting different people and talking about food and food ways. I'll be in Australia next month uh, for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Oh, yes. there last year. Oh, you did? Do you we know? used to live in Geelong. Yeah, do you know where to go eat? I don't. I'm going to ask you. Oh, yeah, send, we know. <laughs> send, a, okay. send, us an e- send us an email specifically. To uh, to h a i g h at verizon dot net, and we'll send you restaurant and recommendations, I'll send, and I'll send you a list. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and maybe there's we a can... there's a place in you remember that place in Chinatown that was so great. In fact, Melbourne has almost like the second or third largest Chinatown in the whole world. Yeah, really. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. The food in Melbourne is really great. So <laughs> we'll make some introductions for you if you get in touch and and remind us. And in thank the meantime, you. safe travels, and thank you so much for joining us on the menu today. It's been a pleasure to talk oh, to you. Nicole, I'm, I'm very excited about your recipes in this book. Again, it's Nicole Ponseca. I am a Filipino, and this is how we cook. And much success with your restaurants and, and your mission and this book. Okay, so that, so there you have it. Yes. Another, another program in the bag, another, another week with you as our company. We're so glad that you joined us. We hope you'll join us again same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.